Muri Larimer. That's Twaripi in my language for good morning. And a warm Pacific welcome. My name is Henry Ivara Ture, and welcome to another episode of the Pacific uh, Wayfinder podcast brought to you by the Australia Pacific uh, Security College. Now, this is the second episode in our two-part series on climate security in the Pacific ahead of the uh, COP27 meeting in uh, Sham el-Sheikh in Egypt. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land we broadcast from today, the Nanawal and Nambri people, and pay respect respects to their elders, past, present, and imagine. Today I am joined by uh, four guests. The guests I have are Dr. Siobhan McDonald, Ms. Brianna Gordon, and Ms. Aka Ramon. Can I ask uh, Aka to introduce herself, her interest in this area, and uh, what she hopes to uh, achieve from attending the meeting in Egypt? Henry, a very good morning to you and to everyone this morning. Um, my name is Aka. I'm a PhD candidate with the um, Pacific Security College uh, doing research in climate displacement. My interest in this area is obviously um, looking at migration and in particular the role that labor mobility plays as an economic um, option for climate um, displacement. And I should also add that Aka has served in the government of Kiribati as a very senior officer for 13 years. Um, and in 2013, she was actually the uh, head of the Foreign Affairs Department in Kiribati. So she comes to this uh, conversation with a whole world of uh, experience in diplomacy and, and government. May I ask um, our next guest, uh, Brianna Gordon, to uh, introduce herself. Yuma Henry and everyone listening today. My name's Brianna Gordon. I'm a Wiradjuri and Gandhagara woman, and I'm also a PhD candidate in the Fenner School. Uh, my research is on mercury pollution on Gunai Kurnai land, which is Gippsland, Victoria. And my interest in the climate change space and COP27 is the role and voices of Indigenous people, as well as how pollution and uh, more holistic and chemical sides of climate change can impact Indigenous heritage and culture and how it can in impact the health of Indigenous people. Um, and yeah, I'm very excited to be here and listen to all our conversations. I must also add that uh, Brianna is a recipient of the ANU Climate Alumni uh, Leadership Program at the College of Asia and the Pacific, supported by the Institute of Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. Thank you, Brianna. Um, let's move on to getting our other guest, Dr. Siobhan <coughs> McDonald, to explain this, uh, introduce herself. Over to you, uh, Siobhan. Thank you, Henry. Uh, so I'm a senior lecturer in the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. And uh, since 2019, I have been a negotiator uh, at various COPs for the Pacific, representing Vanuatu and Fiji in loss and damage. And this year, uh, I have the honor of representing Palau, um, Palau, alongside Samoa, will take over the AOSIS chair uh, for the Pacific after this COP, and um, they are very interested in progressing loss and damage negotiations. Um, so from that position, I'm, um, I'm going to COP really to advance the Pacific position on loss and damage, which we can talk about uh, today. I also spent, after last COP, I worked to develop the, the Pacific um, 
and First Nations Climate Alumni Program, which is what is supporting Aka and Brianna, but also a whole uh, another three Pacific Island uh, scholars to go to this COP um, with support from from the College of Asia Pacific and and ICITS. So I think this is going to be a really exciting COP, uh, both for ANU but for the alumni scholars as well. Thank you, uh, uh, Siobhan. I think we should maybe start the conversation by maybe uh, going, asking Dr. McDonald to talk about loss and damage framework for PICs at, uh, at this COP27, just to educate us on what it is all about and what we, the Pacific, hope to achieve in terms of setting policy for our leaders in this region. So can I ask um, uh, Siobhan to, uh, to take us through on this very important subject? Yeah, thank you, Henry. Um, so obviously I'm an Australian with a very long history of working in the Pacific on land, climate change and disaster issues. And in that role, because of my long history of working with Pacific governments um, and on uh, legal issues in particular and on drafting, um, I have since 2019 been involved in loss and damage climate negotiations, which has been an in incredible honour. So loss and damage is really the space that we describe as the kind of loss and damages that are occurring that are beyond adaptation. So in a Pacific context, we're really talking about the issues of displacement, for example. We're talking about the loss and damages that are occurring because of sea level rises. We're talking about the loss and damages that are occurring after cyclones. So in the last five years, there have been three Category 5 tropical cyclones that have, have hit the Pacific. And in a Pacific context, these issues cause what are called non-economic and economic losses. So the economic losses are often described as the material losses. So after a cyclone, there's a prolonged period of rebuilding. There's a lot of infrastructure problems. There's a lot of rebuilding that takes place. There's a huge impact to gross domestic product. And we can calculate those losses. But in the Pacific, what is even more profound, what people talk about often is the non-economic losses that come that are beyond adaptation. So the loss of access to ancestral homes, the loss of access to culture, the loss of access to language, the loss of access to burial places, for example. Um, a lot of my work is on displacement issues and these are issues that people raise with me in, in my work all the time. So the Pacific since 1991 has asked for loss and damage finance to address some of these impacts that are caused by climate change in the Pacific. So in 1991, Vanuatu put forward a proposal asking for an insurance scheme to address the impacts associated with sea level rise. And in Glasgow last year, Fiji, I led the drafting with Tuvalu, um, asked for a loss and damage finance scheme that was supported by the AOSIS block that was then supported by the entire G77, the whole global south, the G77 and China. And so this year at this COP in Sharm el-Sheikh, the big item on the agenda is the request for a loss and damage finance facility, which is a huge agenda item that will go forward into the negotiations. So there are three issues related to loss and damage. One is the loss and damage finance facility that's on the agenda item. One is what will happen with what's called the Glasgow Dialogue, which was the, the dialogue that came out of the decision text from the last COP, from the Glasgow COP, from a Pacific perspective, but also from a Global South Chief 77 perspective. 
there's a lot of unhappiness about the Glasgow Dialogue because what is happening at the moment is we are meeting every year, but there are no outcomes. There's no report required from that dialogue. So the question is, what is the dialogue for? What is, going to, what is it going to achieve? And then the third issue in relation to loss and damage that we are negotiating and taking forward is the operationalization of what is called the Santiago Network, which is the technical delivery network in relation to loss and damage. How are we going to provide technical services to countries um, to start looking at these issues of loss and damage? And that's another very important issue that we will negotiate over. So those are the issues that we're taking forward to Egypt, and that is what uh, the Pacific agenda is broadly, but that is also the agenda of the Alliance of Small Island States, the AOSIS block, and the G77 block more broadly. Uh, thank you, Siobhan. I want to move the conversation to uh, climate uh, financing. And um, can I ask Aka to speak to this, if, uh, if you can, uh, on climate financing, because that is a challenge that we have always in the Pacific, I think, experienced the capacity to access these funds uh, effectively and efficiently and implement it in, for mitigation purposes. So over to you, uh, Aka. Thank you um, very much, um, Henry and Chef Dr. McDonald, for setting the tone to the discussion this morning. Um, uh, access to climate financing, I think this has been an ongoing issue for the Pacific, uh, a very big issue for, for us, particularly the small islands like my country of Kiribati. Um, when we talk about getting access to climate financing, we think of the money. But I really want to see it in terms of the capacity that we need to build out of that support. And in the beginning, the, the Pacific was not able to get their hands on the climate finance um, facility. It was there designed for the most vulnerable countries in the world, including the Pacific region. And the problem was that we couldn't access it. Having said that, we have reviewed and worked harder to sort of align our um, talents on the ground in government to make sure that they are fitted to the required preparedness. And that has been encouraging for us because uh, with that effort, we were able to at least get to some level of um, readiness to receive the funds. So coming back to the question of um, being able to get access to financing, um, climate financing, Henry, uh, as, we, as I speak today in Kiribati, the, the Australian government is delivering um, as part of its um, drought support for Kiribati as an, an impact of climate um, change, um, desalination plants to help, you know, get water closer to the communities and the villages where people are suffering um, from drought and water problems. So uh, I think just getting access to climate financing is significant too important for us to be able to get this money. But then there's also the question of whether the money gets back to the community. I mean, if, are we able to impact the community directly? Because having worked in government, I understand that we invest in public assets. So we focus on the money going into roads, major water systems, and sometimes often forget about the communities who are in particular needs and dire need to get these um, resources. What exactly is the challenge? Um, is it the challenge about accessing the funds or is the other funds not available? Uh, Dr. McDonald, yes. So one of the arguments that we've been putting forward in terms of requiring loss and damage finance is very much about the critical climate finance gaps. And in doing that, we've worked with the Alliance of Small Island States really to map some of the many problems in current climate financing. 
So one of the things that we know, for example, is that with the GCF climate finance that's available currently, there are very long delays for national countries in accessing that finance. So we're talking 24 month, 36 month delays between application and receipt, which is a big problem. For example, if you've just had a cyclone come through your country. We're also talking about the fact that, um, as Akka was mentioning, there's some real capacity issues at local level for countries in the Pacific. So what we're seeing, for example, is that some countries are finding that the administrative burden attached with applying for climate finance is so overwhelming that they feel like they can't actually meet the requirements attached with GCF financing. So we've seen, for example, that it's taken Fiji five years and they're still not accredited for GCF finance. We've seen that in Vanuatu, GCF financing is currently going through a third party, an NGO, rather than through the national government. So there are critical climate finance gaps in terms of existing financing arrangements. If we go back to the story I was telling with loss and damage, the other issue is that there are not climate finance products available for some of the loss and damage climate issues that the Pacific and other countries face. So for example, there are no climate finance products for slow onset disasters. So for sea level rise, for drought, there are literally no climate finance products. So there are these critical gaps at the moment. There are also no climate finance products available for non-economic loss. There are no climate finance products for loss of languages, for example, for cultural loss, for many of the things that are critical issues for Pacific Island countries and for many Indigenous peoples around the world. So these are some of the critical climate finance gaps that we really need addressed in terms of loss and damage financing. Thank you, Siobhan, for that uh explanation that makes a lot of sense about the challenges that Pacific Islands face and uh, we are actually very appreciative of the effort that you are you know undertaking across the Pacific to make sure that our Pacific countries access those funds efficiently and apply uh, them for mitigation purposes uh, in a timely manner so I'm uh, thank you for that uh, explanation uh, Dr. McDonald I think we'll now turn the attention to a a subject matter that is very close to the heart of uh, Brianna, um, and that's about uh, the role of indigenous and Pacific voices in climate negotiations. I want to go to this first before we come to the subject matter of uh, the emissions, uh, carbon emissions. But let me hand it over to uh, to Brianna to share with us her thoughts about uh, indigenous voices on climate and. Uh, Mandangui, Henry, uh, that's thank you in Wiradjuri. Indigenous voices are, I think, really the key to uh, climate negotiations, not only for Australia and the Pacific, but all Indigenous people from around the world. Because Indigenous people have existed in their lands for here in Australia, 60,000 years and many thousands of years for Indigenous people across the country, across the globe, sorry, they are holders of an extraordinary amount of knowledge and some of that knowledge has been partially lost and is held in the hands of only a few elders and of course some of that knowledge due to colonialism is lost forever or I should say is currently lost but we can work to re rediscover that knowledge. Um, for example we do have programs here in Australia where Indigenous people's traditional science and traditional knowledge has had a massive impact in being able to help to prepare for 
the issues of climate change as well as to recover from the after effects. Uh, for example, uh, we have many Indigenous ranger groups that work through the federal government uh, and they are instrumental in preventing bushfires and working with forest management to uh, ensure that if when we do have bushfires, as um, our forests do require to burn, to regenerate, those bushfires are controlled and they don't threaten uh, species numbers and they don't threaten human lives. We also have our Indigenous rangers who do a lot of work on biodiversity. So Australia, we have rich biodiversity, but we are also vulnerable to invading species uh, from animals to pathogens and plants. So our Indigenous rangers are very well educated on the area of the environment that they patrol and they're able to spot if there are any uh, foreign species that have taken root and then they're, we're able to remove those species and protect our biodiversity. And that has a lot of implications for the health of the country and the health of people. Uh, one such example is Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. So, of course, uh, Aedes, aegypti, Aedes aegypti mosquitoes can carry dengue and Zika and yellow fever. And those are, it's particularly an issue in northern Queensland and the Torres Strait. Uh, with Aedes aegypti, they are a species that thrives in warmer climates. So as the temperatures rise around the country, the Aedes aegypti mosquito will be able to take root in other parts of the country that are previously been too cold for them to survive. So our rangers have an important role in keeping an eye out for these mosquitoes to be able to spot them in other parts of the country before they can become endemic and spread diseases to other parts of the country. Um, but I also want to talk about uh, the reason, another reason that Indigenous voices are so important, um, it's because they are often, as with any vulnerable group, the ones that are most impacted by disaster. Um, so a recent statistic, 6.2% uh, of the people impacted in some recent flooding in the rural areas around Sydney were Indigenous, so Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders. However, they only make up 3.3% of the general population. So we do see people who are in vulnerable communities, who are in lower socioeconomic communities, who don't have access to information and mobility, are the ones who are going to be impacted by floods and wildfires, which are only going to increase with climate change. Um, and so what we really need to do is we need to elevate the voices of our elders to share the knowledge so that that knowledge, which I really believe is the key to being able to survive this looming apocalypse, really. But what we need to remember is that because of colonialism, a lot of this knowledge is so sacred and has been held on so carefully for hundreds of years because there was such a strong effort to erase it. So there is a lot of fear in Indigenous communities with sharing this knowledge and inviting European Western Australians into their communities because they're afraid that uh, they'll be taken advantage of or that they won't be respected. Um, so there's a Wiradjuri word, Indimara, which means respect. Um, and that's what these relationships need to be based on in order for them to be effective. So our engagement with Indigenous people has to have Yindimara respect as its primary foundation. And I think, and I've seen that when Western science and indigenous people work together, the outcomes are extraordinary. That is how we will be able to combat climate change and be able to have a future for all of us. But as I said, indigenous voices need to be respected and they need to be forefronted in these negotiations. Brianna, so when you get to Egypt, 
um, there will be other indigenous voices, uh, people from the Pacific and elsewhere, who will also be attending the meeting. Uh, can you share with us how U.S. the indigenous voice leaders uh, will work in this very huge global meeting to make sure that indigenous voices are heard and acted on? Absolutely. Um, for me, especially, I will be deferring to Indigenous elders who are there. Um, I'm quite a young person and uh, we really value the guidance of our elders and how we're going to engage and how we are going to tackle this. Um, but I think a very important thing is, you know, as an Australian Indigenous Wiradjuri Gundagara woman, I really want to establish and talk with both Indigenous people from other mobs in Australia and Indigenous people from groups around the world to find our commonplaces and work out how we as a group can tackle these issues and elevate our voices. Because on our own, our voices are very small. But if we are able to find commonality and work together, there are a lot of us at COP and around the world who will be able to elevate the voices of each other. Um, and another thing that I'm doing to sort of uh, strengthen the amount of voices of Indigenous people at COP is I'm working with um, some Indigenous networks here at ANU. So I have requested uh, statements or stories, art, research from Indigenous people here at ANU. And uh, I'll be taking that with me in a collection to COP so that in a way I can carry their voices with me and their voices will be heard at COP and not just my own. And I've also done that with uh, a Wiradjuri group that I am a member of, so that our elders who you know don't have the capacity or the funds to travel to COP can still have their voices and their opinions heard. And so you know one person can now become the voice of a hundred at COP. Thank you, Brianna. Um, let's take a segue away from the role of Indigenous voices and Pacific voices in climate negotiations and, uh, and, and have a discussion around um, the inclusion of ocean and climate ne uh, nexus. And I, I think the best person who can lead us in this conversation, I think, is uh, Aka, being a Pacific Islander herself, uh, to uh, share with us her understanding of this inclusion of ocean and climate and why it's important that it is on the agenda for discussion at COP27. Thank you um, very much, um, Henry. I think it's a timing question, having just listened to Brianna about Indigenous voices and Pacific um, voices in the COP negotiations. And um, the ocean climate nexus, why is it too important for us to ignore at the big negotiation rooms? Um, Coming from the Pacific, we are the ocean people. And I think our late scholars, Apili Hawofa, Teresa Tiaiwa, have often reminded us of how the ocean runs in our blood. We live in the oceans. It's our culture. It's our way of life. It's um, it's our reality. But it's also the, the, the same ocean that is, you know, becoming a monster in front of our very eyes. And I say this all the time because I think we often forget that the ocean is actually part of the solution to the climate problem. And consider a planet that's covered by 70% you know, of, of, of ocean regions and 20% of that or over 20% of that is the Pacific region in itself. We're talking about a, a life support system that sustains life, not just for the Pacific Island people, but for the whole of humanity, for the whole of planet Earth. Because it is from the center of the oceans where we produce our food systems, our water systems, our climate um, systems are also generated from 
from the heart of the ocean. So we have to look into the ocean for the solutions or part of the option moving forward. Um, that's why I think it's important for us to do that. And I just want to perhaps share a, an example of the what we started in Kiribati as a, a PIPA, a Pacific, uh, sorry, the Phoenix Islands Protected Area. Um, and I want to mention this because I think it was massive in creating the sort of momentum that the world needed in committing to um, this ocean protection mechanism, building marine parks, because it matters, because we need to, to save the, the planet Earth. And to begin that, we, we realize that it's, um, it's too important for the ocean to, to be part of the, the solution. And, and that sort of created, you know, it started off from Kiribati and then it, um, it created a sort of um, competition around the Pacific. The U.S. with its large, you know, ocean territory also was one of the biggest um, um, holders of the marine parks in the world. So I, I think this is something that I would like to also encourage is part of the discussions at the at the COP negotiations. We need to keep oceans on the agenda. And the Pacific people have a lot to say about this because we have, as Brianna has said, we have lived times immemorial around the ocean. We've survived storms. We journey the oceans. We migrate to other parts of the world. We seek our food and, and life support from, from the ocean. So, yep, we need to, to really strengthen the role that we, we see the oceans um, deliver in terms of um, becoming part of the solution. I hope that <laughs> answers the question somewhat, um, Henry. Thank you, uh for that uh, thoughtful uh, uh, comment around ocean nexus and climate. I think I should now ask uh, Dr. McDonald um, to share with us her thoughts around carbon emission reductions. I mean, uh, what's the real challenge in, in getting this 1.5 or 2 degree you know, target? Over to you. I think that's the elephant in the room kind of question. So I'll throw it over to Dr. McDonald to enlighten us on the challenges around achieving this target. So the starting point, Henry, um, for answering this question is that this is a critical issue for the Pacific. Um, the Pacific has long held the banner of 1.5 to stay alive. And that is really the perspective, particularly coming from coral atoll nations of the critical issues attached to that tipping point globally of 1.5 degrees. There is a lot of discussion around this COP that it cannot be the COP where we lose 1.5. And the reason that we're starting to have that conversation is because the existing climate science is pointing to the fact that we're already at 1.2 around global warming right now. So there's real difficulties in the global political kind of geopolitical landscape at the moment. Um, one is the issue of the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis that it's creating and the fact that the whole of Europe is now looking back towards fossil fuels. So this is a real difficulty in terms of the carbon emission budget that we're talking about. The second one is this enduring issue of fossil fuel subsidies, which is something that Pacific Island countries have been calling on for a long time for countries like Australia, but also the major carbon emitting countries to get rid of, to stop subsidizing fossil fuels. Uh, would be a, a very important first step in addressing these sets of issues. But carbon emissions, as we know, come from so many different sources. So one of the things that Pacific Island countries have mobilised around recently, led by countries like Palau and like the RMI, for example, have been the carbon emissions that are caused by 
um, by the maritime industry, by cruise ships in particular, but other maritime vessels, hugely carbon emitting um, to rival the airline industry, for example. So it's about looking at carbon emissions strategically across all of these different areas. And it's about pushing very strongly on these issues of what countries are prepared to commit as their budget bottom line in terms of their nationally determined commitments. And what we say in this broad suite of issues uh, that we go to with COP is it's never just one issue. There has been a lot of... Uh, there's been a lot of attention, for example, paid to these issues around what's called Article 6. And Article 6 is the carbon trading scheme. So the rules for the carbon trading scheme were partially established in Glasgow and will be revisited at this COP. And it's very important from a Pacific perspective that those rules are strict enough that they don't allow backyard, back kind of pathways out for countries who are engaged in very high levels of carbon emissions as well. So we have to make sure that there's an integrity to the Article 6 scheme as a very crucial set of issues. And we need to push, we need to say that first and foremost, we need to stop the scale of carbon emissions, that everything else comes after, that these issues of adaptation, that these issues of loss and damage are causally after the first set of issues, which is that we flatten what is happening in the carbon emission story. So each year when you go to COP as a negotiator or as someone who attends, you see what's called the carbon clock, which tells you the number of years that the, the world has until we hit 1.5. So right now that clock says six years and 300 days until we hit 1.5. So that is incredibly urgent. 1.5 speaks to a whole range of global planetary boundaries, that once we hit them, we have, it's a point of no return. So the climate science is telling us that this is critically urgent and the time for action is now. Thank you, uh, Dr. McDonald. Um, I think the final area that we, have, we will discuss is the gendered impact of climate uh, change. So I will ask each one of you to share your thoughts about the gendered impact of climate. So let's uh, hear from uh, Brianna, and then we'll go to uh, uh, Aka, and then we'll end up with uh, Dr. McDonald. So over to you, uh, Brianna. Thank you, Henry. Um, I think it's really important to establish to listeners that we are not impacted by climate change the same. Vulnerable people are always going to bear the brunt of any disaster, including climate change and what can result of flooding and bushfires and droughts. Um, women, are, especially in uh, low and low middle income countries, are disproportionately responsible for uh, finding food and water and fuel. And this puts a massive burden on them when those resources are put at risk or depleted due to climate change disasters. And I also want to talk about how uh, women are especially vulnerable and their babies are vulnerable to pollution. Um, so my work is in mercury pollution. And uh, a very common way that people are exposed to mercury is through contaminated fish. So for people in the Pacific with a fish-heavy diet where 
fish and fishing and the ocean, as Aka was talking about, is so integral to their culture, they are at an extreme risk for mercury pollution. Um, so there was actually a um, study in 2018. So uh, 757 women of childbearing age from 24 locations in 21 countries um, from islands in the Caribbean, Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean uh, consented to be studied. Uh, so essentially, these women had a fish-heavy diet and they were found to have an elevated mercury body burden or uh, basically high levels of mercury in their body above the US EPA reference level, uh, which is the safe amount of mercury that you can have in your body without becoming sick. So mercury um, can cause brain damage and developmental issues, uh, blindness, seizures and an inability to speak. It can cause deformities in neonates and uh, especially for pregnant women, we don't really know a safe level of mercury that women can consume um, as that pollution will be passed on to their babies. And that is a unique threat of women uh, due to the, uh, because they can carry children. Um, and I just, you know, want to close out my section uh, with a statement from uh, Matcha Phuong In. So she's a lesbian feminist human rights defender in Thailand's Chiang Mai, Mai Hong Son and Tak provinces. Um, I think this really kind of sums up why we need to be talking about gender inequalities in climate change negotiations. Uh, so she said, if you're invisible in everyday life, your needs will not be thought of, let alone addressed in a crisis situation. That's a very beautiful uh, statement. And that takes us, I think, over to Aka to kind of like it's a bad, not a very good word, but to operationalize it in terms of the challenges that Kiribati women face, especially that Kiribati is really next to the equator and the uh, weather patterns have a significant impact on uh, particularly water security and, uh, and the challenges that those bring to the lives of women. So, I mean, if you can uh, share with us your experiences from Kiribati, Thank you, um, Henry. And just taking off after Brianna's statement, I think um, we cannot dispute the reality that um, climate change is creating a threat multiplier of um, um, risks. And, and this risk for us in the Pacific is that the vulnerability of um, those people or minorities in, in communities are the ones to be most affected by these impacts. When we talk about Kiribati, it's not too far from what um, Brianna has said, but what comes to mind is really in terms of women and children. And you just picture, you know, I try to visualize it in terms of a disaster. When we get a disaster, what happens is the women are, and, and, and children are the ones to be less prepared, less informed. I don't know why we carry this mentality. For me, I just feel like we, they're the ones that need to be more equipped to 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 face the challenge, to adapt to whatever it is that that's um, confronting them in their lives every day. And for us, you know, often people think of um, climate change as a future scenario, but I want to emphasize that it's affecting our everyday life. And you touched on it um, earlier on, the water security, because it's come to a level where our water resource cannot naturally recharge itself. And because of the impact of um, sea level rise, creating increased salinity, like mercury, we're drinking salt water. Our water is not safe to drink. And so you can just imagine the level of health that our children and women, in particular women bearing children, when it comes to this sort of um, you know, situation, these circumstances. And um, 
drought, you know, you cannot get access to water. And if you do, it's probably not the safest water supply that you can get on the island. And being on the equator also means that we're prone to skin cancer and all this, you know, um, sun and um, diseases that we may, um, uh, uh, what do you call, contract in, in the process. But I really just want to say that it, we need to, to balance the, the gender. We need women and, and children to be as much a part of the discussions that we're having today. So they are well equipped to, to address, you know, some of the issues confronting them. And also I wanted to just go back to what you asked Siobhan earlier on, and sorry to deviate from, from the question, but I think it's important for us to realize that while we look at all these options to tackle the problem, cutting down emissions is really the priority. The purpose of us going to the COP meetings is for us in the Pacific Islands, the survival. It's about us being able to ensure, as Siobhan said, we're running out of time and the urgency is we need to act now. And cutting down the emissions is, is at most because we will be touching on everything else, but we're not addressing the root cause of the problem. And that will mean that women and children will continue to suffer because the gap will grow as we um, continue to contribute to the, to the problem. Thank you. And the IPCC reports or modeling on climate for Kiribati um, paints a very challenging future going forward for that co your country in terms of water security and all climate-related uh, effects on your economy. So the impact on your country and on women and children will, will be very challenging going forward. Um, so yes, uh, we need to take action. I'll now tend to... Uh, uh, Dr. McDonald to uh, share her thoughts on uh, gender impact on climate change. Over to you, uh, Siobhan. Thank you so much, Henry. And uh, this question is very close to my heart because um, I've had a four-year ARC with Professor Margaret Jolly looking at the gendered impacts of climate change in the Pacific. So there's just a few points that I wanted to raise. The first thing is that, of course, not all women are equally vulnerable, as has been pointed out. So this thinking very carefully about issues of intersectionality and, and these issues of vulnerability become very important in this discussion. So what we see, for example, is that climate change exacerbates vulnerability. So the point that Aka just raised at, based on what I was discussing is very important because as, you know, as global warming increases, what we see are greater impacts of climate change and that has these profound impacts on vulnerability and on the systems and ways of life of Pacific people. So for example, throughout Melanesia, we have subsistence farmers. We have women playing a huge role often in gardening, and that becomes increasingly precarious as weather patterns change. As, as women move into disaster uh, situations, there are particular implications that women face. So in my work on displacement, there are particular security issues that precarious women face when they are placed in tents for long periods of time. They face issues of personal security. There are particular issues that women face around water security associated with long-term disasters and the implications of these growing water security issues that Uckers raised around um, seawater inundation of, of freshwater systems across the Pacific. And all of these are increasingly exacerbated by climate change. Now, just to kind of complicate this further, we've got to be very careful in the Pacific not to just equate gender with women, because what we have across the Pacific are huge very complex gender diverse population. So we have whole communities of Leyte, of Fafafine, but throughout all of our 
all the Pacific countries, we have populations of gender diverse communities. And often those gender diverse communities need particular attention post disaster. So we've got a lot of reports, for example, that tell us that gender diverse populations need particular attention and particular preparedness and post disaster strategies to be properly looked after. And we need to be careful to think around those sets of issues as well when we're thinking around these issues of gender. And there's very beautiful work that's been done um, in Samoa, for example, around um, very uh, amazing work done post-disaster, thinking about um, these roles that can be played, both positive and negative uh, with gender diverse populations. So let's just, we need to think about spaces of agency as well as spaces of vulnerability in these, um, in these critical times of climate impacts and also post-disaster as well. I'll throw it onto the floor for any further comments uh, around particularly the, um, the, 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 the role that this COP may um, bring to the objectives that we uh, aspire around climate change challenges for, for the Pacific particularly. Yeah, um, I just want to start by thanking uh, Siobhan uh, for discussing the nuances of gender in the Pacific. Um, that's something that obviously myself included, we sometimes gloss over um, when discussing gender inequity, but it is something that's very important to remember. Um, and I just wanted to sort of uh, speak on a closing statement, uh, especially for Indigenous people and young people who are integral to this COP. Um, and I think it's the one thing that I really want to say is hold on to hope. Um, we've been talking about, you know, we, we have, what was it, six years and 300 and something days to the point of no return. Um, and I'm, I'm 24. And my whole life, I've heard about climate change and global warming and basically how it's the world is coming to an end. And it can be really, really hard sometimes to not just, you know, want to crawl up in a ball and give up in the face of politicians denying the existence of climate change and continuing to fund coal-fired power plants. Um, but I want to—I do want to emphasise that even when things seem really, really bleak, there is hope. Um, and this combating climate change may just well be the hardest thing that humanity as a group has ever had to face. But I do think that if we remember the values of Yindimara respect and the values of working together and prioritising people and their safety above money and, you know, continuing to grow our economy or our industry, that we can do this. Um, so, and in holding on to hope, remember that you're a part of that hope. Your voices are what are, is what is going to help us get through this. So, you know, speak up even when it's difficult and uh, yeah, just if we work together, there's there's hope. Brianna, thank you for those uh, encouraging words, and we are very pleased to to, uh, to see you holding the torch for young people going f forward, and and the voice that you articulate for us. And you know, do not stop, continue to, uh, to shout, and continue to uh, articulate. Any thoughts from uh, Aka? Certainly, um, Henry. Look, I want to also build on the inspiration that Brianna has shared with us. The reason that I am so um, passionate about this topic is because I have children and it's about their future. Are we doing enough to give them a safe future? We don't know what's going to happen and we're running out of time. But really, I just want to briefly, you know, uh, sum up my comments by saying to the Pacific uh, delegations, we've been attending COP for too many years. And each time we come home and say, it's frustrating. We're not going to get closer to what we, we were there for. And that's the reality. 
but I think, you know, having some hope, you know, lighting the torch of hope and making sure that we're talking and doing whatever little steps that we can in our little communities is going to actually amplify the voice, amplify the models of championing these activities for others to learn from. But my last um, comment, um, Henry, is the Pacific is the front line. And it means that we are the warning system of what the world will face in into, you know, coming days. Maybe not... In the, in, in the near future, like we are now facing in the Pacific, but it's going to happen to the rest of humanity. So we need to act. On that note, I will uh, ask Dr. McDonald, um, what is the key message for you at this uh, COP27 in Egypt? My key message, and I'm totally inspired by Brianna as well. Um, I always have hope, um, but my key message is let's go, you know, let's go. So I'm so proud to support the Pacific leadership again. Um, let's play hard, let's play fair, let's come away with some real outcomes. That's my message. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, uh, Dr. McDonald. Thank you, Aka. Thank you, Brianna. I think that uh, brings uh, to conclusion our conversation around uh, this very important uh, topic, climate change and COP27. Thank you uh, very much. Mahalo. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder podcast. You can find more podcasts, analysis and research on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can also follow the Australia Pacific Security College on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. Join us next time for another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder.